This is uh, page gear three, one, unit seven, part one, second half, neuroassessment. So, um, you're going to um, you're going to encounter patients uh, who sustained head injuries most commonly, um, where well, you know, it could be any one of a mechanism, uh, different mechanisms, stroke, post seizure, uh, head injury. But uh, head injuries are interesting because uh, patients with um, Head injuries who are awake and talking often have um, uh, retrograde amnesia and uh, so we want to ask about um, uh, you know, what they remember from the crash and uh, just a couple of terms you should be familiar with. So anterior grade is anything moving forward. So um, when we talk about cardiac conduction in semester three, we'll talk about anterior grade conduction, which means sort of forward moving ahead. Uh, versus retrograde, and so, um, so which one do you think anterior grade amnesia would be? Uh, inability to remember <coughs> ongoing events after the incident. Correct. Yeah, that's good. And so, uh, in contrast, retrograde would be. Yeah, so inability to uh, remember events immediately preceding the event. But, uh, yeah. Does it mean like the frontal of the back? No. Uh, uh, because, uh, so first of all, uh, just to be really clear about head injuries, um, you know, we can drill down sort of academically and get into a discussion about. Uh, and I don't mean here in the class, but I mean in the field, we can get academic about, oh, what part of the brain was injured. But clinically, it's impossible, virtually impossible to distinguish what area of the brain has been injured um, when we see patients with retrograde versus anterior grade amnesia. And so it's, it's just, it's kind of a futile exercise. What's really more important is, um, you know, how do they respond to questions? What do they remember? What do they not remember? Um, what's their, what are their pupil size and reactivity like? Um, do they have nystagmus? Do they have focal neurological deficits versus global neurological deficits? Those are the things that are important. And, you know, in the crew room after a call, we can, you know, talk about what's what. Um, I'll, I'll give you, you know, probably the only example I can think of a head injury that I uh, encountered where you could, you know, uh, have a good idea of at least what part of the brain was injured or one part of the brain was injured. We had a, um, I think she was 16 and she was um, uh, horseback riding and she was at one point walking her horse and she uh, tripped in a, in a ditch and the horse kicked her in the head. And um, she um, uh, developed, she had a contra-coup injury. So contra-coup is where um, you know, one part of the brain strikes the inner table, the skull, and then bounces back and the opposite side gets injured. And so we know the, the visual area is in the back of the head, the back of the brain, the occipital lobe. And um, when we arrived, she was sitting in the barn and she was like Helen Keller blind, just could not see anything. And her, you know, her gaze was just sort of straight ahead, could not see a thing. And um, within about a half an hour, uh, she started to regain uh, vision again. So. Uh, it was just a cool call, right, that we talked about afterwards. Um, 
Now, um, the th probably the thing you're going to see most commonly with head injured patients who are awake and talking is their inability to remember the event. Um, and it's, <coughs> it's literally like an episode of Groundhog Day, if you've ever seen that movie. How many of you have seen Groundhog Day? Those of you who haven't, uh, uh, yeah, watch it. It's, it's, it's good for a laugh. Um, um, I can give you some other movie recommendations best based on medical stuff, but uh, Groundhog Day is one. Um, um, what's the other one now? That'll come to me later. Anyway, so uh, what happens with a lot of head injury patients that you'll encounter is they don't remember the event. So you'll be in the back of the ambulance and they'll appear completely lucid and they may even know who they are, where they are, and what day it is, but they can't remember the event. So they'll be sitting there and they'll ask you, you know, what happened? And you'll say, um, you were driving a car, you were involved in a crash, and we're taking you to the hospital. And two minutes later, like they never ever asked it, they'll ask the exact same question in exactly the same way. What happened? You know? And so you just repeat it. But I work with medics who get annoyed with that. It's like, come on, buddy, it's a head injury. Like, why get annoyed? Just answer it like you're answering it for the first time, you know? Because um, that's what head injuries do. Uh, so those patients typically, uh, you know, end up with concussions. So uh, in terms of interviewing, you know, whenever we're doing a neurological assessment, we also want to find out if there's any neurological history. So any, any uh, history of disorders or anything that might have precipitated or caused an altered mental status, like diabetes, like palpitations or dysrhythmias, uh, previous seizures, migraine, headaches, strokes, those kinds of things. And um, any recent illness, what's the last meal, when's the last time I had something to drink, the usual stuff. And last meal, something to drink, is usually more to do with um, inf information the hospital wants to know in the event that they have to go for surgery. Um, so interview family and friends, you know, was there a loss of consciousness? Was there any seizure activity? So um, people don't always know what seizure activity is, but I'll ask the question, I'll say, um, you saw him when he lost consciousness. Did you notice any seizure activity? Did he, was he jerking his arms or his legs? And, uh, and if so, I want to find out, do you recall, was it all, you know, all, both arms and both legs, or was it just one side? And hopefully they remember, uh, because if it's one side, that's a focal neurological deficit, right? So if you're, if you've got tonic-clonic, uh, movement. So tonic means stiffness, clonic means sort of jerking. If you've got tonic clonic activity on one side, that's a focal seizure. And that usually suggests a lesion in one side of the brain, right? So um, global neurological deficits means the entire brain is either deprived of blood flow or deprived of glucose or there's an overdose. But when you've got uh, focal deficits like one-sided seizure or one-sided weakness or one-sided uh, paresthesia, um, that usually suggests a lesion on one side of the brain, usually the opposite side of the brain, right? So if you've got a right-sided lesion, you've got neurological deficit on the left side. Right? Now, if you ever want to read a good book about uh, stroke, I recommend um, Jill Bolte-Taylor's Stroke of Insight. Um, she's a neuroscientist from, I want to say Harvard, but I'm not sure if it's Harvard or Yale. And she had a stroke. She had a massive um, 
hemorrhagic stroke in her left hemisphere. Uh, and she does a TED talk, but the TED talk's not very good. It's not a very good presentation, but the book is fantastic. The only thing about the book that drove me insane was she was having a stroke. She was sort of aware she was having a stroke, but instead of calling 911, she was calling her friend. And um, I think eventually she called an ambulance. So the first chapter was driving me insane, like call 911, what the hell's wrong with you? But then you gotta remember it's the United States. In the United States, everything costs money. So, you know, uh, it might be more cost effective to get someone to drive her to the hospital, right? But um, it's a great book. And what I found really fascinating about Jill Bolte-Taylor's book is that uh, she describes what it's like to live in the right hemisphere. And uh, she said uh, that in her stroke, you know, that if there's a silver lining to a stroke, um, it's that uh, living in the right side of her brain uh, was in some ways like a euphoria. It was the most peaceful thing she'd ever experienced, apart from the pain from the stroke. But uh, the most peaceful thing she'd ever experienced. And she is convinced to the point now where she's on speaking tours that if we can train ourselves to live more in the right side of our brain, we could bring about world peace and eliminate world hunger. She is absolutely convinced of that. And she makes a pretty compelling argument about it. And the other really interesting and compelling thing about her book is she talks about neuroplasticity. She made a full recovery from her stroke. What, what would have left most people with permanent disabilities but she understood the science, she understood neurology, she understood that, that our brains are capable of rewiring and refunctioning. So, you know, parts of the brain that are dead remain dead, but other brains compensate, take over. And uh, she basically completely trained her brain and rewired her brain and made a full recovery. It's really, uh, she really, uh, you know, we've known about neuroplasticity and, um, you know, that old joke, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. Well, you know, most, most sayings are bullshit, uh, right? But they're clever and they go, oh yeah, yeah, I like that. Uh, you know, the one I like is uh, those who can't do teach. That's a good one too, I really love that one. Um, <laughs> uh, and uh, don't tell that to brilliant guys like Ian Drennan or John Lee, who, uh, who I consider two of the most brilliant medics I've ever met. Um, but, um, uh, yeah, uh, great book, and uh, recommend it for your summer reading once you've uh, you know, finished this semester and you're looking to take a break. If you want more book recommendations, let me know, all sort of with a medical slant to it, one way or another. So is there a history of past neurological disorder, seizures, tumor, recent headaches, altered level of awareness, stroke? Uh, what's their medical history? Any non-neurological history that might account for the symptoms? As I mentioned, like diabetes, dysrhythmias, hepatic encephalopathy, um, anemia, etc. cetera. Uh, now let me ask you, because I think we talked about this, what's anemia? Low red blood cell count? Yeah, low red blood cell count or iron deficiency. Ultimately, anemia um, gives you a decrease in oxygen carrying capacity. And so that can cause altered mental status, right? If you've got uh, really bad anemia. And uh, oftentimes patients who are anemic get their blood work done, so you want to find out from them when's the last time you, you had your blood work done and uh, uh, what was your, your hemoglobin level. And if you don't know what the hemoglobin level is, just look it up. Uh, just do a Google search, normal hemoglobin levels, and boom, it comes up first, first uh, thing on the page. Um, now, hepatic encephalopathy is interesting. Um, we see this mostly with alcoholics. And um, so basically, your liver 
Um, have you have you covered the hepatic system in AMP and patho? Not yet. Okay, probably next semester. So your liver detoxifies uh, things in your body, right? Um, so um, you know the, all the stuff about detox. You know detox solutions, things to drink, and that. Uh, it's all completely utter bullshit, right? Uh, now, I know. <laughs> now, the the upside to detox is you're going to lose weight, which is you know not a bad thing. You're not really detoxifying your body. You're not really eliminating rancid meat in your gut that's been sitting there for years or something, you know. Um, <laughs> some venison that's been festering and growing <laughs> in there. Uh, but, but you will lose weight. But detox is otherwise a complete scam, right? Your liver and your kidneys detoxify your body. If your liver, if, if you need detox, you really need, probably need to go on hemodialysis, not, uh, not a detox thing. So uh, don't let anyone tell you that detox is good. Also, don't let anyone tell you that uh, supplemental oxygen, like at oxygen bars, is good for you. It's not. It actually does cellular damage because if your oxygen levels exceed your metabolic demands, it creates oxygen-free radicals, which damages your brain, your heart. Um, now, nasal cannula oxygen at a bar is probably not going to harm you for a short time, but it's complete and utter quackery, right? So <laughs> a lot of people get taken advantage of from the pseudoscientists is quite remarkable. But anyway, getting back to hepatic encephalopathy. So when you've got a damaged liver from, uh, you know, uh, liver disease like hepatitis or from, from alcohol uh, and you don't detox detoxify, toxins start to circulate in your blood and they, of course, enter your brain and cross the blood-brain barrier and they cause altered mental status, confusion, agitation, all kinds of things. And I've had lots of patients with hepatic encephalopathy, and they're just confused, and sometimes they're nasty, and sometimes they're aggressive and combative, and you, you know what? You just treat them with respect, and treat them as humans, and uh, talk to them calmly, and usually that uh, will do the trick for sort of calming them down and getting them to go to a hospital. But if you, if you take anything personally, uh, you know, when someone calls you nasty names or is not rude to you, um, it just, adds fuel to the fire. It doesn't uh, help at all. So uh, your best bet is always to be you, be professional, be respectful, be empathetic. Um, you know, when people are nasty to you, you know, I might say, come on, that's not nice. You know, I just want to take your blood pressure. F you! Your mother, bah, bah, bah! <laughs> Look, buddy, my mom's 89. She's the sweetest woman you would ever meet. She's, no, that's, yeah. So. <laughs> um, so we had this guy, I was, uh, you know, there's certain calls that stick out in your mind. We had this guy, he was 71 years old, uh, he was an alcoholic, he was uh, separated from his wife, he was living in this house, and um, uh, his wife called because uh, she was going to meet him and make him breakfast, and uh, she didn't hear from him, so we uh, went into his house, uh, we went in there with... Um, uh, well, my partner and me and a supervisor, we called police. Police arrived a couple of minutes later. We found this guy. He was lying on the floor of his bedroom. He was covered in blood and feces. And all of the, he had all these picture frames in the room and, um, in, and in other rooms. And he basically torn them all down and he smashed them all on this floor. And he was rolling uh, in his underwear 
in this broken glass and his own feces and urine. And he was very combative. Now, he's <laughs> 71, remember, right? So combative, yeah, we could probably handle 71-year-old. But he, was, uh, he had to be at, at least 6'5 or 6'6. Six, six, and his muscle tone was like, uh, you know, a 25-year-old who'd been bodybuilding since the age of eight. Uh, he had, uh, his arms were massive, they were out to here, and his thighs were like tone and muscular, and uh, there was no way we were gonna, you know, do medical combat with this guy to get him out of the house. So, um, we're sort of, we're talking to him, uh, and we realize we can't have a rational conversation with him because he's so confused and so combative and looking at us like, you know, if you come any closer to me, I'm going to kill you. Look in his eyes. And um, so uh, we've now got um, four paramedics, a supervisor, and two police officers with us. And we're debating on how we're going to handle this. And I said, okay, guys, I'm going to call my base hospital doc and get orders to sedate him. So, so I call my base hospital physician. And I know you haven't done pharmacology yet, but I call my base hospital doc. I give him the story. And uh, he says, uh, go ahead and give him, uh, if, you can, if you can manage, give him 2.5 milligrams of midazolam IM. So midazolam is, is a sedative hypnotic. 2.5 milligrams is not going to cut it. Uh, and uh, so I said to the base hospital doc, okay, I'll just tell you now, 2.5 milligrams of midazolam is not going to do it. Uh, can I give him five and repeat it uh, every five minutes? up to a max of 20. He said, he said, no, Rob, he's got liver failure. And because he's got liver failure, he can't metabolize the sedative hypnotic, which means that it's going to stay in the system a long time. So if I give him a sedative hypnotic and depress his level of consciousness, his level of consciousness is going to be pressed for a long time, maybe days, right? But I'm also thinking, okay, well, if I can't adequately sedate him and he fights us, one of us could die. <laughs> Partly because we got to get him from his room down about eight stairs to the main floor and down some additional stairs uh, to the walkway. And um, the stairs um, going from his bedroom to the main floor, uh, it takes a turn and takes another set of stairs down to the basement. The railing is a metal thing that's quite rickety. And if we try to, let's say, secure him on a board or something, and he goes a little crazy on us, um, some of us are going to fall over the railing and down to the basement and get seriously hurt or killed, right? So I'm explaining this to my base hospital doc. He says, he says, Rob, it's, I'm just worried about the pharmacodynamics uh, and the pharmacokinetics uh, especially. And I said, I, I get the pharmacokinetics. I totally get it. But this is potentially very dangerous for us. And uh, he said, well, okay, uh, patch back to me if you need more. So I tried to use placebo effect. Uh, and what I mean by that is if I get someone who's combative and I give them the sedative, I tell them, I'm going to give you a very powerful sedative. You're going to start to feel relaxed very quickly. And then I give it to them and then they relax quickly. Sometimes it works. It's amazing. Even if it's a small dose, right? right? Uh, and sometimes, you know, they're faking it when you give it to them. And as soon as you give it to them, then they go, oh, and I know pharmacokinetically that that drug is going to take at least 15 minutes intramuscular to take effect. But they're going, oh, going, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So anyway, 
So uh, we give them the injection. We, we hold off uh, about 10 minutes and, um, and nothing's happening. So we basically tackle them. We secure them to, uh, I, I think we secured them to a scoop. Might have been a spine board. I can't remember which. And uh, how many of us were there now? Four, five, six, seven of us. I think six of us uh, basically took him on the board and um, carried him downstairs fairly quickly. We sort of coordinated. We said, we're at the edge of the stairs. We're going to move fairly quickly. So I'm going to just say step, 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 step. And we're all going to move together. Are you guys okay with that? And uh, so like so the guys at the railing had the handle of the the scoop of the board and the other hand on the railing. And um, I said, let's lean towards the wall so we don't, no one goes over the railing. So we did that. We got to the main floor and I said, are we ready to go outside? And uh, then we went outside and uh, we got him on the stretcher. So uh, the base hospital doc sent me an email later, said, uh, Rob, how'd that go? And I, I said, uh, what's your phone number? I'll give you a call. So <laughs> I gave him a call and he said, How'd that work out? I said, well, we managed. Um, how was the, the 2.5 milligrams of midazolam? I said, well, homeopathic at best. It didn't do anything, All right? Um, and um, so he said, yeah, I'm sorry. Um, I said, well, lessons learned, right? And uh, so hopefully, you know, he won't be so conservative the next time around when a medic says, um, my life is at risk handling this guy. Because what the medic would do, what you would do, if you were an advanced care paramedic and giving that drug, is you would give the drug, and if you didn't have any effect, you'd repeat it again in a small dose uh, and see how that works, right? So at the very least, if he's still combative, he may not have the same sort of strength to, to fight. And... Um, then you're a little bit safer, but uh, we took a risk. And that's all because of hepatic, hepatic encephalopathy. So uh, I'm not sure what the course of treatment was for him afterwards, but um, uh, it's, a, it's a, a confusional state and it's not always acute. Sometimes it happens over hours or days and um, they get into some pretty rough shape. Um, so other causes of altered mental status include prescription and OTC medications. There's a much longer list than this, but these are sort of the garden variety causes of uh, altered mental status. So uh, or loss of appetite, dysrhythmias, allergies, toxicities, etc. So uh, in terms of exam, so this is important, this whole global concept versus focal deficits. So global deficits would be a depression in Glasgow Coma Scale. Uh, response to stimulus is the same on both sides of the body. So when you, you know, temp withdrawal to pain, for example, if you get down that low on the GCS, they either withdraw on both sides or they don't withdraw at all on either side. Um, and causes typically include um, physiological states like diabetic coma. So um, they refer to that as a substrate deprivation, sugar being a substrate that's needed, right? The brain uses sugar without insulin. Um, it's one of the only organs in the body that uses sugar without insulin. Do you know the, um, the other organ? that uses um, sugar without insulin. The eyes be the second one. Uh, and the testes, the testicles. So brain, eyes, testes. Interesting design, eh? So 
uh, if design's really the right word. Uh, toxidrome would be another cause, uh, some sort of poison. Or a massive diffuse brain injury can give you global deficits. So focal deficits, uh, we assess for motor and sensory function on each side of the body. And um, so, for example, unequal pupils. Now, um, about 10% of the population normally have unequal pupils. And this is why I say it's fun, you know, at parties when you're meeting new people, uh, you know, speak less, listen more, and, and look at them. You know, look at their eyes, look at their, the way they walk, look for scars, uh, and be curious about it. Um, you know, I noticed you've got a limp, did you hurt yourself? Uh, and then, you know, you start to learn, you know, which leg is injure, injured depending on how they limp. Um, or you notice unequal pupils, which is, anis it's called anisocoria, not important, but anisocoria is the term for that in uh, people who naturally have unequal pupils. Um, unequal pupils in a head injury or stroke has to be a pretty massive head injury. We're usually talking Glasgow coma scales of eight or less, uh, where they've got um, a sufficient rise in intracranial pressure that it actually um, causes um, uh, uh, herniation of the brain, so shifting the brain. We'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, so uh, unequal grip strengths. You've done neurological assessments in the lab, right? Yes, no? Okay, so when you get someone with a headache, for example, um, we do basically a stroke assessment with them. So uh, what I mean by that is we ask them to smile to see if they have a droop on one side of their face. We ask them to grip our fingers. So, you know, two fingers, grip them hard. Two fingers only because it's easier to grip two than one. And then the important part is the release part, right? So when you squeeze my fingers, I let go because it takes a higher level of cognition to let go. When you see a baby and you put your finger in, their, in the palm of their hand, they reflexly will grip. It's not because they love you. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> sorry to disappoint. It's a reflex, but letting go is not a reflex. So, but we're checking for grip strength. Is it equal on both sides or is it weak on one side? Uh, we'll be checking for arm drifts. So you might ask them to hold their arms up with the palms up like this at a 45 degrees if they're sitting up and hold them there for uh, 10 seconds and see if there's a drift. They call that a pronator drift, I do that. Um, get them to raise one leg at a time uh, and also get them to, uh, uh, with their feet, um, put your hands at the top of their feet and have them push your hands away and have them pull the the feet, sort of flex the feet towards themselves by putting your hands behind their toes. Do you know what I'm talking about? Have you done this in the lab? Okay, shaking your head, yes, good. Okay, good. So we do the, this sort of routine uh, neurological assessment. Is there unilateral weakness? Is there facial droop? Causes might include trauma, stroke, uh, tumors. And also um, uh, diabetes can sometimes present like a stroke with hemiparesis or hemiplegia. Um, so we always check blood sugar in, in patients who have stroke-like signs and symptoms. It's amazing you can find this crap on the internet, eh? We had a guy once, um, he was uh, working on his car and um, uh, the blade came off 
uh, the fan, one of the blades came off the fan and hit him right in the center of the head, what went right down between the two hemispheres and was sticking out. He looked like a land shark. It was quite impressive. And uh, you might say he had a splitting headache. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> I know that was a dad joke. Uh, so, uh, so we're going to assess GCS, we're going to assess pupil error response, size and equality, reactivity. Uh, uh, dilated pupils, the term for that is mydriasis. Uh, usually we see that in um, uh, sympathetic response or sympathomimetics, so drugs like methamphetamines, uh, crack cocaine, cocaine will give you dilated pupils. Constricted pupils, the term for that is meiosis. We see that in opioid overdoses, typically. And sometimes you'll hear uh, um, with uh, uh, heroin and fentanyl overdoses, you'll, you'll hear them describe pinpoint pupils. And, um, if you ever write pinpoint pupils on your EPCR or your ACR, don't bother writing that the pupils react to light because if they're pinpoint, you can't tell that they react to light because they're pinpoint, because they're really tiny, right? So you can't say they're pinpoint uh, equal and reactive to light. It's like, no, that's a contradiction of terms, really. Now they can be really small, uh, consensual pupillary responses where, I, I n I'll be honest, I never I've never assessed for consen um, consensual pupillary response, but you should be familiar with it. Consensual means that if you put your hand between their eyes like this, and you keep have them keep both eyes open, and you shine a light in one eye, and it constricts, <laughs> the other eye should constrict as well. That's consens consensual pupillary response. Uh, we check for visual, visual acuity, so sometimes we might ask them to, you know, take out uh, uh, an app and ask them to read something from it, um, and ask them, do you wear reading glasses, uh, you know, what's your visual um, acuity like? Um, so we, we try to get some idea of whether their vision is blurred. Um, uh, peripheral vision we occasionally uh, test, but it's not a common pre-hospital assessment. It's more of an in-hospital assessment where, um, where you know, you ask them to look straight ahead and you move a pencil away from them and ask them at what point do they stop seeing it. You've probably had that assessment done by your family doc, right? Yes, no? I think so. Yeah. Sounds vaguely familiar. Yeah. <laughs> I love how everyone's doing it now. It's awesome. How many of you have had your family doc do that kind of assessment? Yeah? Okay. Okay, good. Yeah. So you'll, you'll definitely get that kind of assessment for your medical, for your driver's license, for your F license. Uh, that's part of the, the routine medical exam. So photophobia is what? Yeah, sensitivity to light, right? You see a lot of old people who are really sensitive to light. They wear those massive sunglasses with the sunglasses on the sides as well to block out, block out the light. They're photosensitive. Um, now, you know, when I see uh, a student walking around indoors or in a dark environment with sunglasses, my usual reaction is, I wish I could be as cool as you. That's my sarcastic reaction. Um, but they might be photophobic, right? So it's really... Uh, not always a good idea to judge. Uh, diplopia is uh, double vision. Nystagmus, you know what that is, and we've seen nystagmus videos already. Uh, so this is what uh, 
Uh, when we're looking at the face, especially with strokes, we're looking for equality. If, is there any unilateral facial droop, stroke, or Bell's palsy? Bell's palsy is uh, a viral infection that paralyzes the facial nerve, and they have like a facial droop that lasts for months. But they just have the facial droop. They don't have weakness on the same side like you do with a stroke. So stroke, you get facial droop, but you've also got unilateral weakness on the, on the one side. This is kind of a sad case. I'll show you the video. This, um, uh, this lady uh, went into the eMERGE and was kind of dismissed, uh, but she was having a stroke. Let me show you. She's getting worse. She had a TIA, transient ischemic attack. We'll talk about that in a minute. But Where's the facial droop? Which side of her face? Her left side, yeah. Good. Yeah. Stacy tries to lift her arm with difficulty and says she finds it hard to point at Yeah, so um, facial droop is one of the things you're going to look for. Uh, so grip strength bilateral, um, equal limb movements. Uh, is there a drift? Have the patient hold their arms up together. Uh, and you can have them palms up or palms down, it doesn't matter. I like palms up because it's a, uh, it's a higher cognitive function to do this, right? Um, just as it's a higher cognitive function to, to let go of the grip strength. Um, ataxia, so is there, um, ataxia is an unsteady gait, an unsteady walk. You know, drunks are ataxic, they stagger a little bit. Uh, and we're gonna assess some cranial nerve function now. We're not going to assess all of the cranial nerves, but I'm going to give you the list of the cranial nerves that you should be assessing. So you'll want to memorize these because they'll be, uh, this is a great opportunity for a mix and max, max, mix and match type question. You know what I mean? Like this deficit, which cranial nerve is it? This deficit, which cranial nerve is it? So, so here they are. So the third um, cranial nerve, have you done neuro yet? Just starting? Okay, so the third cranial nerve, the, it's called the oculomotor nerve. It's uh, responsible for equality and reactivity of the pupil. And um, uh, when you've got a dilated pupil, it may suggest uh, a lesion, like a bleed or a tumor or something on that side of the brain. They call that ipsilateral, which means the same side. So if you've got a blown right pupil, you may have a bleed or a stroke or something going on um, in the right side of the brain. Now, there are two, just uh, briefly about strokes. There are two categories of strokes. There's thrombotic stroke, which is a clot, and hemorrhagic stroke, which is uh, blood vessel bursts and it bleeds, right? Like an aneurysm that bursts and bleeds. And by far the most common is thrombotic stroke. Strombo thrombotic strokes don't cause a rise in intracranial pressure to the point where you get pupillary dilation. That usually takes a big hemorrhage um, to cause herniation of the, of the brain. I'll talk about herniation of the brain in a minute. So ipsilateral means same side. 
Uh, we look at the fifth or trigeminal nerve, which is the sensory nerve of the face. So uh, facial anesthesia, meaning facial numbness, uh, loss of corneal reflex. Now, corneal reflex uh, is maybe one of those assessments you, you don't need to test, but um, um, if you move on to ACP and critical care, particularly a critical care, when you're dealing with patients with neurological deficits in the back of the, the, the airplane or the helicopter or the ambulance, you might check for corneal reflex, and that involves um, sort of opening the eye and taking some clean tissue paper and just touching the eye, and that should, if you did it to yourself, what would you do? Yeah, it would be a really intense blink, right? Uh, but if you do it to someone who's unconscious, like has a sufficiently depressed level of conscious, they lose that corneal reflex. <coughs> right, so that's uh, the fifth nerve of the trigeminal nerve. But we look for, we ask about facial anesthesia if they're able to talk to us. Um, the seventh cranial nerve is the facial nerve, so unequal facial expression, inability to close one eye. So that would be, you know, the stroke patient. Um, who's got impairment of the, the, the seventh cranial nerve or the facial nerve. Uh, and sometimes you'll get patients who are unconscious or unable to close both eyes or unable to close one eye. And usually what we do is uh, if I get a patient who's unable to close an eye, I'll just close it for them, put a little piece of tape over their eye to keep their eye closed. Because otherwise the eye dries and it can actually damage the eyes in the long term. So I just put a light piece of tape on there. The eighth cranial nerve, sorry, going back here, eighth cranial nerve is the vestibulococcular nerve, and uh, the eighth cranial nerve is the one involved with tinnitus. Does anyone have tinnitus ringing in their ears? Or uh, nystagmus? You know what nystagmus is, right? So nystagmus or ringing ears would be vestibulococcular. Uh, now the gag reflex, uh, everyone knows what the gag reflex is. You put anything in the back of your throat, you gag on it. There are two um, cranial nerves involved in the um, gag reflex. The one we think of mostly is the 10th cranial nerve, the vagus nerve, but it's, it also involves the, um, the glossopharyngeal nerve, which is the sensory component. Uh, and then there's the motor component, which is the 10th cranial nerve, the vagus nerve. That's the motor response, right? So there's the glossopharyngeal, which is the sensory component, that's the ninth cranial nerve, and uh, the 10th, which is the vagus nerve. Now you may remember from our discussion about cardiac that the vagus nerve intervents, inter, um, innervates a lot of different organs. Uh, some of the major ones include uh, your heart, your lungs, your bladder, uh, parts of your GI tract, and so on and so forth. So um, if you stimulate the vagus nerve, you can actually slow the heart rate down. So if you uh, intentionally gag someone, you could make them bradycardic. Now, now um, not that you would ever intentionally gag someone, but um, uh, elderly people are particularly uh, predisposed to um, uh, gag reflex and, and sensitivity to gag reflex. So if you get an elderly person who's vomiting in the back of your ambulance, keep an eye on their heart rate because their heart rate can start to drop, right? Can drop below 50, below 40. Uh, they get excessive vagal stimulation. Right? Um, when someone has a supraventricular tachycardia, I think we talked about this before, the, one of the objective is to elicit a vagal response, is to try to stimulate the vagus nerve to slow the heart rate down. We do that with a valsalve maneuver where someone takes a deep breath and bears down um, and then has a, a, a vagal episode. I think we talked about this. If you're 
constipated and trying to have a big poop, right? It's a good idea to breathe when you're pushing down, um, not to hold your breath and bear down because otherwise you can cause a vasovagal episode. You could actually pass out on the toilet, even from a sitting position, right? So if you're trying to push out a big poop, just breathe. If you're trying to, if you're trying to lift heavy weights, keep breathing, right? Usually breathe out when you're lifting the weight, you know, slowly, purse lips, so you don't get uh, vagal stimulation, right? And drop your heart rate and lose consciousness. I think I told you, we had a guy at Gold's Gym who, um, who was lifting a big weight and he lost consciousness. He vasovagaled himself and his pinky got caught in the, in the bar and he lost his uh, baby finger, took it right off. Did I tell you that story? Yeah. He had a spotter and everything and the guy like grabbed the weight and pulled it back but, but the guy's pinky was, his arms were right here I guess. And is it, isn't it harder to lift with your arms out there? I don't know, I don't do that sort of thing. Yeah. So, yeah, why don't keep them closer that way. Keep your hands away from the bar. So, in, in summary, AVPU is a really crude neurological assessment, right? So, initially we do sort of an AVPU to get a sense of where they are neurologically. You know, are they alert? Are they responsive uh, uh, verbally? Uh, are they responsive to pain? Or are they completely unresponsive? And then um, uh, immediately after a primary survey, the first thing I usually do is auscultate the test, chest and then do a Glasgow Coma Scale. And then uh, in that process of GCS, I'm looking for um, deficits, global or uh, focal. Always assess blood glucose in anyone with altered mental status. Um, global deficits are usually metabolic causes or massive brain injury. And um, Focal deficits usually suggest traumatic brain injury or tumor or stroke, something like that. Uh, or sometimes uh, diabetic hypoglycemia with um, diabetes and hypoglycemia, you can get stroke-like symptoms sometimes. That's why we always check blood sugar for all mental, altered mental status. And um, if you're dealing with someone who's conscious, say at a car crash or after a fall, we wanna try to uh, determine whether there was a loss of consciousness. Um, and uh, if the person doesn't recall, and usually they don't recall if they've lost consciousness, we ask bystanders or we ask, what do they remember? Do you remember the fall? No. Um, do you remember what you were doing before the fall? No. Sorry, did you say diabetic hyperglycemia? Hypoglycemia, hypoglycemia. But hyperglycemia can alter your mental status as well. No question about it. But hypoglycemia can present with stroke-like symptoms. That's why I'm trying to emphasize it a little bit. And by far the most common diabetic emergency that we respond to is the hypoglycemic diabetic, not the hyperglycemic. We don't see that as commonly. So the hypoglycemic diabetic. Um, so GCS of eight or less, we consider an OPA and PPV. We'll look at the rate and depth of breathing. Um, uh, respiratory function can be affected by the central nervous system insult, and so we need to determine, do we need to assist ventilations or not? Uh, and what's, if you happen to have the diagnostic tool at your disposal, what's the most valuable diagnostic tool to help you determine whether the patient needs assisted ventilation? And tidal CO2. Yeah, so pulse oximetry would be important because that tells you about oxygenation, but end tidal CO2 tells you about uh, really perfusion and gas exchange. Um, scalp injuries uh, are not the same as head injuries, right? And when we're describing um, head injuries, it's important to, if you're gonna describe it by, by frontal, occipital, parietal, temporal, 
if you're going to divide it into those areas, make sure that you say uh, patient has a contusion uh, to the occipital skull or contusion to the occipital uh, area. Because I've seen uh, paramedics document uh, contusion uh, or injury to the occipital lobe. Well, I can't see the lobe. You can't see the lobe. CT might see the lobe, but we don't see the lobe, so I don't talk about the lobe. I just talk about what I see, right? I don't speculate. Make sense? Right? Uh, any questions about neuro stuff? No? Okay. Uh, let's take a break till 5 2.